Hello. So this month's discussion is around the experience of ambivalence, which isn't to be confused with indifference. Um, in it, I will share my own example of maternal ambivalence and what it means to live with two or more conflicting truths at once and how to sort of act or function in the world from that place of living in kind of a conflicted state of truth. I believe that one of Kind of the major hurdles to growth in life is how we endure ambivalent states and learn to be with what can feel like incredibly agonizing inner conflict. So what I propose is that decision making is ushered in when clarity emerges, but that not all big things in life are going to offer a compelling urge in a particular direction. Carl Jung even offers that ambivalence is more the normal state of consciousness than certainty and surety. In fact, being certain and sure all the time can be an indicator of one-sidedness in psychology and that there's something being compensated for. So as you listen on, think about the times in your everyday life where you feel paralyzed by choice. See if you can call to mind the things that make you feel torn and see if you can come to that resolution or clearing for now that there's really no decision that's asking to be made in that ambivalent state or that neither choice will really make all that much difference in the grand meaning of your life. When we get stuck wrestling with ambivalence, paralyzed by the analyzing of each side, we're usually attributing a heavy weight of meaning to the outcome where none might exist. So something to keep in mind as you do listen forward, this is not a discussion around the morality of having children or the choice of having children. It's not a discussion about parenthood or fertility or choice or any of that. I'm intentionally using a very real experience of ambivalence in my own life, which happens to be around having children, so that I can help you tap into places in your own life where you have the psychological experience of ambivalence and might not realize it. So I'd love to hear about what comes up for you, your struggles with ambivalence and how you sit with this very human phenomenon when taking on risk and making moves in your life. Uh, you can message me, email me, contact me on my website and share your stories. Um, that's ericaleerani.com. So without further ado, my essay on ambivalence. Maternal ambivalence, myopia, and the modern plague of analysis paralysis. So I was never the kid that dreamed of having babies. And for some of you who know me, that's probably not all that much of a surprise. I didn't make my dolls get married and live out the fantasy life of a nuclear family. I never dragged a stroller around with a plastic infant in it. My brothers and I were usually too busy lighting toys on fire over the barbecue. So in all seriousness, I've never had the lifelong goal or aim of having a child. It wasn't a clear destination like it is for some people. Did I want a loving partnership? Yes, I pined for that. Freedom? Yes, I climbed mountains and crushed hearts for it. Knowledge? Definitely. I immersed myself in everything and anything I could read and debate. Babies? Hmm. 
This is the terrain where personal life collides with cultural expectations. While I never behaved in a way that said, I want to be a mom someday and I'll do everything I can to get there, I always, and I mean always, assumed that I'd be a mother one day, and a damn good one at that. And I think everyone in my generation thought we would be mothers one day regardless of our own inclinations. So it's a super disorienting experience to become an adult and make very few moves toward motherhood, yet simultaneously imagine myself becoming a parent. It feels like living two realities at once and then having to constantly, coincidentally grieve the one track that remains unrealized. It's painful, and on top of that, it's a suffering that doesn't cease until you realize that you're trapped in a lose-lose dynamic. Even more disorienting for me, especially as I began to approach my mid-30s, was the feeling of becoming dispassionate about any choice. On top of trying to tease apart social conditioning, cultural expectations, and biological instinct from my own personal convictions, was the sense that maybe I had no strong personal convictions on the matter at all? Or if I did, I really couldn't tap into what that was. This brings up the very real psychological experience of ambivalence, holding two or more opposing views or desires at once, which is not really to be confused with apathy or indifference. You could be holding two or more sort of conflicting ideas at once. I think what I've learned about the ambivalent state through my own experience is that when it arises, the decision or outcome is sort of irrelevant to the moment. So stay with me here. We all have experiences where we fixate on a decision that we can't really seem to make because we feel we could make a decent case for each of the outcomes or any of the outcomes. I usually come up against this feeling when I'm deciding if I should go on some big vacation with a group of friends. I start to craft stories in my head about why I should go, why it would be great, and then I craft equally compelling stories as to why I shouldn't go, which usually has something to do with saving money or some other practicality. What I've learned is that in these situations, it really doesn't matter if I go or not in the grand scheme of things. In my agonizing analysis of the choice, I'm attempting to sort of make meaning or apply some significance where there really isn't any to be made. I think maybe I'll meet the future husband I've been pining for on the plane, or maybe I'll avoid a major earthquake at home. All this scenarioizing betrays the lack of inner conviction. And we've all done it. We all create sort of these fantasy ideas of what might happen if we go or what might happen if we stay, what might happen if we choose A or B. But you have to notice that that decision making, that rationalizing is coming from a part of your brain that thinks it has control over the future. It doesn't. It's not coming from any sort of inner sense of truth or desire or conviction. When ambivalence arises, the decision is not the point. And the outcome is rarely spiritually consequential to the trajectory of a life. Now, I can hear your objections already. You're thinking, but wait, Erica, having a kid is a hugely consequential decision. Yeah, you're right. 
Um, having a child is objectively consequential, just as not having a child is equally consequential. But when I'm sitting in my own ambivalence about being a mother, there is this nagging feeling that for my life in this moment, it hasn't really mattered. What matters is my coming to consciousness about this inner tension and my tending to it so that I can perhaps, with my one little life, help shift the ancestral and cultural inheritance of this issue for the many women and prospective parents in general who come after me. Because if I don't look at it this way, all I'll end up doing is writing lists on paper that defend or refute the decision for or against. I debate myself using my thinking mind, which is not good at these kinds of tasks. You cannot think your way through ambivalence. I try to buy into the narrative that not having a kid is a better choice for the planet, or that having kids is a vitally meaningful component to the human experience, or that not having a child affords freedoms that parents don't have, or that having kids brings an expanded sense of love that non-parents can't access. We've all heard these messages. But very little of this debate is valid for the individual, for you, for me. None of it really means anything to my story, to my doubting or grieving or wondering what if. I know people who are crystal clear that they don't want to have kids, and they have lots of reasons to cite and an almost sort of allergic reaction to the idea. And I know others without a shred of a doubt that they do, and they're so excited to be parents, also with all their reasons and certainties. This is not me. And the reasons are irrelevant. These people have an inner knowing, that sort of intuitive sense, one that I did not come prepackaged with on this particular subject, at least not yet. What I do know is that this is the first time in history that having children is becoming a real conscious choice for women and no longer a sort of passive assumption or obligation or like a built-in to your life. It's a lifestyle choice, which is a reorganization of all the social values and mores that we've erected over the span of human history. This raises a cascading waterfall of other considerations and this is where the universal and the personal levels of consciousness and context sort of collide once again. I'm the product of my time. I am deeply influenced by the feminist movements of modern history, as well as the way the larger narrative weaves itself into and out of my own lived experience. So my mother and father divorced when I was nine-ish, and my mom proceeded to raise three of us by herself on a teacher's salary. And I kind of took one look at our lives and I looked at my father's behavior and I said to myself, mm, nope, no thank you. I definitely don't want this. I felt the financial strain and the ever-present stress and I decided I didn't want to relive that experience again, but on the other side of it as the parent. So the choice to parent became predicated or contingent upon several outside factors. I often would say that if I met the right person, I fell in love, and we had enough money, because money was always kind of the, the thing, the value set, the trigger, I would probably have kids. 
But let me tell you why all of this weighing and calculating and obsessing and ruminating over this perceived, quote, decision was somewhat irrelevant. I didn't meet that partner, not yet at least, and I haven't lived that life where the inevitable outcome is a child of my own. So let me say that again. I haven't lived that life. So in this light, the decision is irrelevant to the outcome and the ambivalence that I experience is deeply real and deeply rooted in my psyche. So in some ways I can interpret the ambivalence as being sort of a sort of being open to or in other terms resigned to whatever outcome presents itself most compellingly. So this this is kind of an uncomfortable paradox because it makes us wonder how much egoic will or control should be applied to a life and in service to what outcome. How much are we supposed to muscle toward something as opposed to allow or follow life's unfolding? While this is a little bit of a tangent, I would offer that ideally we learn to bring the will and service to the deeper intuitive self. So back to my example of a maternal ambivalence. For many of us with this experience of maternal or parental ambivalence, we feel like freaks of nature. Most people look on with suspicion, usually assuming we're just covering for some real shortfall in life and that we must be deeply in pain or aching and longing or, you know, missing something inside. But what they miss is that the pain of never having an experience can coexist with the pleasure of never having that same experience. That is ambivalence at its core. To expand this idea a little bit, I think we live in a time where we really believe that every decision that we make is extraordinarily important to the outcomes of our lives and to the eventual happiness we think we might reach if we just made the right choices. This belief weighs so heavily on every step we might take that it becomes bone crushing. It's paralyzing to think that every single step we make, every choice we make, has some extraordinary outcome and meaning to our legacy. And so not only do we get overwhelmed by bigger life decisions like moving to a new city, we also become utterly incapacitated when confronted with the kind of ever-present conundrum of what we should eat for dinner. Whether it's tacos or pasta, it absolutely just doesn't matter. Unless, you know, you're gluten-free or something. But I digress. Analysis paralysis is a product of our myopia. Myopia being narrow-sightedness, focusing too much on what is right in front of you rather than having a peripheral and a depth in your vision. We are too narrowly focused and thus we assume that each move we make has some existential meaning. We are tied to the idea that we have this dramatic hand in our own fates and destinies. That's not to say that my life wouldn't look different if I had my heart set on becoming a biological mother. If that were the case, and if my upbringing and traumas were all the same, I would have married someone inappropriate, had children, and relived my mother's story but I would have had children because I would have been committed to that idea. So from where I sit, it feels very clear that when there's a decision to be made, we make it. 
When we have an inner compulsion that feels strongly for or against something, we'll know it. And when a fork in the road emerges that is absolutely critical to the fulfillment of a meaningful life, meaningful to us based on our personal values and desires and beliefs, and not meaningful to the culture, we will take it seriously and have the capacity to know deep down that there is a right and a not so right for us at this juncture. So regardless of how much you think you're responsible in every single moment for shaping the entirety of your existence, I'm sorry to break it to you, but the rest of it just isn't in our hands. And the most meaningful choices we can make will be the ones that aren't mired in ambivalence. Now, for those who want a little bit of the psychology of ambivalence, continue on. First, I want to address the distinction between true ambivalence and what often happens to us upon coming to a clear but perhaps challenging choice. Sometimes we get crystal clarity, usually through intuition or some visualization or feeling, that there's a decision to be made and a path we must take. There's kind of a point in time where we have this clarity and insight and wisdom and we just go, yes, I know. And then more time passes and we don't take action and that clear vision starts to fade and that deeper knowing starts to fade and it becomes easier as this time passes for us to sort of a doubt question obfuscate that original stroke of insight that felt so right so if this is a pattern for you like it is for me then you'll find that you have absolutely zero access to that original feeling because of all the ways that your body and psyche have shut down the window of opportunity for change While there's so much more that could be said here, I'll just stay on topic and emphasize that if you once had a very clear sense of direction around a decision, but you can no longer feel it, you know, maybe you were clear four months ago or four weeks ago, or maybe you were even just super clear 20 years ago, um, you're probably not dealing with ambivalence, but with some other force or complex or neurosis within you that wants to avoid having to follow through on that piece of inner wisdom. And this this is the juncture that sort of creates suffering around meaning in our lives. When we say, you know what, I know that's true, I know that's right, but I'm not willing to follow it or follow through. That's probably the closest definition of suffering that I personally can come up with, at least when it comes to psychological suffering. What's really interesting to me is that in Carl Jung's analytical psychology, He suggests that the nature of the psyche itself is ambivalent toward incarnation or birth. So what this means is that the layer of consciousness that is universal or collective or a part of that greater stream of psyche, what is known as the self, might be ambivalent about whether or not it becomes differentiated or manifest through you personally, through your individual ego. There's this inherent ambivalence about personal development and our capacity to grow or individuate. So that means that what we think of as, quote, higher consciousness or God consciousness isn't inherently good or inherently wise. It just is. And it kind of holds its own tension or ambivalence about becoming, about developing, about growing. This psychological ambivalence mirrors our confrontations with the tension of ambivalence in everyday life. 
We expect to see and experience very clear preferences, and we expect a duality in the choices that are presented to us where one is obviously good and the other is obviously bad. The dichotomy of morality fixates us, but it's not the natural state of the psyche. And so ambivalence is actually a natural state of consciousness. Jung essentially says as much in Psychology and Alchemy when he asserts that a person who is always in a state free of friction, contradiction, or tension is pathologically one-sided, and therefore this kind of person is incomprehensible. From Jung's perspective then, perhaps maternal ambivalence is more the normal state of being. It just happens that our culture and biological imperatives collectively have favored and thus incarnated the side that procreates until now. As the culture shifts, we're becoming more conscious of the choice and then also the tension. We're capable of giving more credence to the other truth that we may also not want to become or be parents. On that note, I invite you to think about experiences of ambivalence in your own life and what your relationship is to living within the tension that practically and psychologically defines our lives. Can you be with it? Can you sit in the company of multiple conflicting yearnings without succumbing to the impulse of finding a good option or the best option? Can you free yourself from decision-making and instead listen to the deeper energetic discourse of your life? Can you, when confronted with this tension, make the decision to not make a choice? Because in reality, you're not being asked to make one. So I'd love to hear about your stories of ambivalence. You can share them over on my Instagram in a DM. You can message me through my website. I'd love to hear what you think on this topic. Obviously, the discussion of maternal ambivalence is a very like energizing, potentially quite triggering topic for, for some people. I understand that, but don't let that mire this deep dive into the experience of psychological ambivalence overall. I'm using my experience of maternal ambivalence to help you tap in to what ambivalence looks, feels, tastes, smells, and sounds like in your own life um, and to sort of unearth where you live in the tension of multiple truths. All right, until next time. You've been listening to Again But With Feeling, a space where I share essays and insights around career, culture, and depth psychology in a way that helps to reframe the inner and outer paradigms. Um, If you'd like to learn more about my work or to find out ways to work with me, you can visit ericaleerani.com or find me on any of the social media platforms.